Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. Hey, it's Farah here. We're continuing to take a little break from our series on stories about millennial sex, relationships, and intimacy. It's turning out to be a wide-ranging exploration, and it needs more than a couple of episodes to do more than just sort of scratch at it. So anyway, you already know that we're pretty skeptical about generations. They're made up. Sometimes you've got a measurable boost in birth rates that have a clear beginning and a clear end, a baby boom, if you will. But when we're not talking about baby boomers, things are a lot fuzzier. And by fuzzy, I mean arbitrary and a little bit stupid. I mean, have you ever looked at charts showing how many babies are born each year? It's impossible to discern a pattern, except that the number of babies are growing while the birth rate is declining. But out of those two data visualizations, a million stories can be born about millennials' approach to marriage, parenting, motherhood, and more. It's definitely a clearer story, with society having a need and a want, heroes and villains, obstacles to overcome, than just some sort of long-term reproductive trend. So I'm currently reading a book called Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. The conceit of the book is that people have long confused her with another Naomi. But in addition to that confusion, there's also a layer of the uncanny that even other Naomi is not herself, but has become a public self, a performed self. I highly recommend the book, but but I had to pause when she began to talk a bit about the legacy of a different person altogether, Bell Hooks. She wrote that while Hooks believed in the power of naming systems, she, quote, was far more ambivalent about the impulse to attach identity signifiers to our beings, to brand ourselves as a this or a that. In her landmark 1984 book, Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, Hooks cautioned readers to avoid using the phrase, I am a feminist, and opt instead for I advocate feminism, explaining that unlike the I am label, which triggers the listener's prior beliefs about what and who is a feminist, the latter is far more likely to begin a conversation about what concrete changes feminism is trying to achieve, and quote, does not engage us in the either or dualistic thinking that is the central ideological component of all systems of domination in Western society. What stood out to me here is something you'll hear in just about every interview we've conducted so far. We've asked people if they identify as millennials, and if they are millennials, they say that they do. Not only that, they're apt to say, I am such a millennial. Looking at what Hooks had to say about the label feminist, I have to wonder if the millennial label also avoids that conversation about what people in this life stage are in fact going through and what changes they are in fact trying to achieve and triggers our collective beliefs about who and what a millennial is, avoiding the actual conversation we should be having. So if we're right and generations are just a construct, they still have to come from somewhere. Constructs have to be constructed after all. Some of the raw materials for narratives about generations, as we all know, come from internet trends, memes, a clip that goes viral, like this one. When I was trying to buy my first home, I wasn't buying smashed avocados for 19 bucks and four coffees at $4 So you reckon each. that's real, that people actually, young people, actually end up just spending their money and then whinge about the fact they can't get into the property market? Oh, there's no question it's real. 
That clip aired on the Australian version of 60 Minutes in May 2017, which is also when the search term avocado toast began to trend in search. This one guy, Tim Gurner, was recently in the news for calling employees arrogant and calling for a 40 to 50 percent increase in unemployment. So we'll all be more grateful to our bosses and realize that we need them more than they need us. So sure, this guy is great at creating viral moments. But this is a group activity. Tim can't do it alone. He needs people writing on deadline, doing it for the clicks to get his ideas to go viral. He's recently learned that that kind of group activity can be painful and not merely profile raising. But if there's anyone who has had a front row seat to the construction of various memefied elements of the millennial narrative and the Gen Z narrative, too, it absolutely has to be journalist Taylor Lorenz. She began her career in tabloids and blogs, rapid filing stories about Internet culture, and is now a tech and culture reporter at The Washington Post, with her first book out on October 3rd called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and it's available for pre-order now. What follows is our conversation with Taylor, recorded a few weeks ago, about her career, her book, and her experience of the evolving narrative identity of millennials. We hope you'll enjoy it. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. I'm Farah Bostic, the love boat generation. (laughs) I wanted to be Julie. I wanted to be the person that welcomed you onto the boat. I had a clipboard and everything. It was my (laughs) life's goal. Of course. And I'm Taylor Lorenz, and I'm a millennial. We have a very, yeah, Yeah, that's exactly great. (laughs) We do have a very special guest today. We have Taylor Lorenz. She has a new book. I think Farah and I have safely, safe to say, have been spending a lot of time of our lives reading your writing, but now we have a new book to dig into, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. But I've been reading you in... Oh, man, the Atlantic everywhere, going back, going back. Where are you writing now? Um, Now I work for the Washington Post, and I'm a tech columnist covering online culture. Got it. And you are a millennial. I am. I'm a real millennial. I graduated right into the recession, like a Mm. lot of millennials. (laughs) So do you own the millennial identity with pride? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what I am. And I feel like I'm like also... I, for a while, I was a little bit like, I always wanted to be, I always thought people a little bit older than me were a little, were like cooler. And so some of my friends identify as Gen X and I was like, oh, that's cool. But I'm down with the millennial label. So (laughs) (laughs) that's who I am. (laughs) I'm curious as we ask this of everybody that we talk to who's a millennial, as a millennial, and I guess also as someone who is, who covers what you cover for major outlets. How do you feel about like, we've been talking about this kind of idea of a millennial narrative, and it has undergone Mm -hmm. some transformation over time. How do you feel about the way Mm -hmm. it's been constructed, how it's evolved, how it continues to portray your generation? Yeah, well, I really made a name for myself. Like, I mean, initially, I was a blogger and wrote for a lot of digital media sites, but it was really Mike.com that like, I started breaking the most news for, which was like the quintessential millennial site. I think the New York Times story on them was something like, what if millennials ran a media company or something? (laughs) And it was all supposed to be for millennials by millennials. That was back when like, everyone thought like millennials are the ones that are on their phones too much, you know, and they're like the young problematic ones. And and I actually wrote about this in 2017 for Mike.com and for BuzzFeed. Um, I wrote about this flip in 2017 when people really started to sort of like 
prioritize Gen Z um, in terms of marketing and also a lot mm-hmm. of Gen Z marketing firms cropped up and people really started to like, I guess, stop caring as much about millennials. That's interesting. I don't, we've talked about the, the shift to the, of the narrative, but I don't think we've talked about because we were prioritizing Gen Z as the next marketing target. We've talked about the recessionary period and coming out of that, how millennials didn't have as much money, but we didn't say like, oh, and there's a replacement behind them that maybe does have some more discretionary funding. Yeah, I just noticed that. I mean, in 2017, when I did this story too, because there were all these Gen Zers selling themselves as consultants and saying, like, I'm a teenager and like, we're Gen Z, we're not millennials. Like, we know what's what's <laughs> up with whatever and trying to get those marketing dollars. But, you know, soon those kids are going to get replaced too. So it, it all moves on. But yeah, I mean, millennials, I think we got the short end of the stick. I saw um, something on Washington Post recently that was saying that were, I can't remember the name they gave us, some something depressing, but like the unluckiest generation or something. Mm. And it was just saying how like, basically there's been like two recessions or two major events of like the 2008 recession and then the COVID pandemic and stuff and the effects that that had on like labor market and just how like we're never going to be able to buy a house or <laughs> save. I was like, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> Have you seen, you know, you started blogging and then you were at Mike, which was, you're right. It was like built for millennials. It, it was perfect for that time and place. Have you seen your beat change, you know, over the course you've obviously you're now with the Washington Post. It's a lot different scale, a lot different priorities, but just covering technology and online culture besides the pace of that, have you seen the kind of your beat change in, in, in any other ways? Oh yeah. It's changed so much. A lot of that's what my book's about actually, just sort of like the evolution of the social internet. Um, when I started in 2009 blogging and in the early 2010s, content creator culture was really associated with, with millennials and, and a little bit Gen X too. Like, I mean, some of the early, the people in the first content house ever, which is called the station in 2009, that was like Phil DeFranco, you know, all these other people that were like Shay Carl, all these people that were very much actually, I think Gen X technically. And then, yeah, I think like the rise of YouTube was very like intertwined with the millennial narrative. I was I don't think it's until TikTok took off that you started to see this like shift in like sort of platforms and sort of like their association with the younger generation. Vine was very associated with millennials. Instagram, we have the whole like Instagram millennial pink aesthetic. So um yeah, it's shifted a lot. But millennials were the, you know, the ones that really were that first sort of like social generation. I think in there were these Gen Xers in it. Um, initially, especially in the 2000s. But I think millennials were the first to grow up with mass social media. Yeah. And they were, you know, millennials, you're right. Millennials were identified by those platforms, Instagram, especially. Yeah. And Vine. Yeah. Poor Vine. Well, Gen X would also be too old to have a .edu address to be on Facebook um, in the first round of Facebook as well. I mean, when I was working in a research company and we were like, looking at Facebook, we couldn't look at Facebook. <laughs> we had to kind of ask people <laughs> about Facebook because we were, yeah. we didn't have well, a video addresses for using in the early days. Hello, so, fellow yeah. kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't imagine. I was, I went to a big state school for most of college and I can't imagine not using Facebook, especially like I was in a sorority and I just, like Facebook was so, it was such a utility, especially in the 2000s. Like that was mm-hmm. just how you connected with people at school and found people in your classes because you used to be able to see 
everyone in your classes, mm. which I guess they took away probably a long time ago, but that was, yeah, <laughs> Facebook was everything in the, in the mm-hmm. 2000s. And I talk about that in my book too. I talk about the rise of Facebook and actually I talk more about how Facebook sort of taught us all to post for the public. Right. That's what I was just going to ask. Was was Facebook kind of the gateway drug of training millennials or anybody actually who started on Facebook how to post, how to how to present themselves online? Yeah, and I think it gets really written out of a lot of history. A lot of people think that the content creator world started with YouTubers, and that's not true at all. It started, of course, with bloggers and specifically mommy bloggers and fashion bloggers and lifestyle bloggers and these people sort of cult- cultivating cults of personality and then monetizing it. But Facebook was the real gateway drug. Like you said, it kind of like taught everyone to post for an audience and taught us all to kind of perform for this digital audience and taught us to have this digital presence in the world almost. And so even though a lot of people don't associate it with influencer culture, I think without Facebook and the newsfeed really, which is what did that. And, you know, we wouldn't have what we have today. Yeah. It was even a giant leap from the kind of MySpace (laughs) experience previous to that of, we were just talking the other day about, this is an aside, but I was listening to a playlist somebody made and it had a a death cab cover of Against All Odds. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, take a look yeah. at me now. That's all. And I like posted about it on Instagram and a friend of mine who is a millennial was like, this was my best friend's MySpace song. Like it was this, the song that put <laughs> his MySpace page. And I was like, oh, I really missed this when it came out if it was yeah. on his MySpace page. But yeah, that, that sort of transformation into um, out of these like deliberately ugly pages onto a fairly uniform experience, but it's all in the feed and you can see what everybody's doing. And that like it did feel like a more posting for the public experience as opposed to like posting for your friends. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I talk about this, but MySpace had such a different value proposition and actually their the way their marketing materials looked, they talked about themselves exactly how TikTok talks about themselves, which is this like mm-hmm. entertainment platform. And it's about sort of like scale and discovery and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And which at the time, I think it was really too early. Like I don't think most people wanted to have that much discovery on the internet and be exposed to people that they didn't know as often, like most people. So, you know, Facebook won out, but I I do think like, it's funny to kind of see the pendulum swift shift back. And actually a lot of that stuff that MySpace was really thinking about, we now, you know, have. Mm -hmm. They were ahead of their time. Yeah. (laughs) Now we have the technology to actually do it. Yeah, I mean, years and years and years ago, you know, in the early 2000s, my first job in an ad agency, we would have youth trends consultants come and like pitch the latest trends that they were seeing to us. And we were, we would kind of look at it and go, that's like a couple dozen kids you saw around FIT and in Union Square. And it's not really relevant to the brand we're working on, but thanks for coming. Um, And that would just sort of be the end of that. Like, you know, you you might get some brand to pick up that trend and actually make it a trend. But what I started to notice was if you wanted to know what are the kids into and what are the memes you should leverage as a brand and who are the creators we should partner with, like the easiest thing was just to like stick a Google alert on Taylor Lorenz and then the deck built itself. And (laughs) so take that as a compliment if you like. I don't know if it is or not. Um, But I think (laughs) there was this kind of feeling, and I think there still is, that that you have a, you know, you and other people on your beat have the, um, but probably you more than other people, um, for Gunner Hill, are kind of this almost like 
you know, for the people who are not of the internet as much, right, even if they're building things and funding things and covering it, they're not living their lives online in the same way. You're kind of in this hit maker or curator role for them. And so like, you kind of look at the timeline of your pieces. And it's a lot of like, here's fun, interesting stuff you should know about what's happening on the internet. And I feel like it started to kind of take a little bit of a turn to like, here are the people who are exploiting and ruining the internet. (laughs) And (laughs) not all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I can change. I can tell. Talk about that, by the way, mm-hmm. like how yeah. it's changed and why it's changed. Yeah. I, well, for the first part of my career, it was really just trying to convince people that this was a beat, which was a huge uphill battle. Like, mm. I mean, even around Vine, like when I was reporting on that stuff in like 2014, 2015, like you couldn't get editors to care. They would let you do those stories basically, like in your fun spare time. But I would mm. had I was running social for my day job because no one would even make this a beat. They were like, we don't like someone to cover the internet. Like that's just a niche thing. And um, they didn't take it seriously either. And they certainly didn't cover it, consider it tech reporting. And a lot of people were Mm -hmm. so livid that I was calling myself a tech reporter because I wasn't reporting on like the Facebook board switch up or something, or like reviewing iPhones. Like people were really, really hostile to the notion of covering tech culture, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was weird. Um, and there just wasn't outside of Katie Natopoulos at BuzzFeed, there was like no one really like mm-hmm. as you know, it was very hard to get like mainstream places to take it seriously. So I felt like I had to write up every silly trend and whatever. And then now that there's this whole like group of people, though not nearly enough, but there's a lot more people that are sort of covering the daily trends, I try to kind of talk more about the bigger stories and like the bitter, the bigger implications. Now I'm at the Washington Post, so they care a lot about political implications and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But it's, it's also just the industry has changed so much. And, you know, back like when I was covering like, O2L, like collab YouTube house or something <laughs> like that, like you sort of don't really think about how all of these things eventually ended up being weaponized by, you know, I famously mm-hmm. wrote this story about like revealing the woman behind libs of TikTok or like, yeah. you know, how the right wing sort of, influencer machine, how they've taken over. And so I think it ended up having sort of big political implications, which I write about now, but I still like to do the fun stories when I can, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I also don't feel the need to do every story because I know that there's so many other great people. I mean, I love like Callan Rosenblatt at NBC. She writes about like a lot of, you know, she's always like doing the trend explainers. Yeah. And then Rebecca Jennings at Vox does such great internet analysis. Mm -hmm. EJ Dixon too at Rolling Stone is really good. And Miles Klee. So it's just a lot more people that I'm like, okay, if I don't do that story, it's all good. (laughs) You know, you could read your stories and see the, the, that part of the narrative of, oh, millennials and the internet, that's cute. You know, like talking about Vine and then talking about Hype House and talking about, you know, these as the culture connected to business and politics and people started to make those connections. You can actually see in your writing and obviously moving from pub to pub, you can kind of see the maturation of people saying like, oh, I get it. I see now how this all connects to it in a way that probably we were, you know, as a Gen X, I was like, I don't know, Vine is fun. I don't really want to think about it too much more than that. I like these six second videos. Don't make me, please don't make me think about it. Very Gen X posture there, Adam. (laughs) Vine was one of the last social platforms that was never weaponized by political factions. It was just fun. It was just fun. Which is why I went away. 
No, it went away because, well, actually my book has tons of information and, and actually a lot of tea about the end of Vine. Um, and just actually they, 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 I mean, had an incredibly hostile relationship with their creator community and uh, the founders did, mm-hmm. and they drove their biggest creators off the app and it ended up really kind of damaging the app to a point of no return because they lost most of their engagement. And then it was really mismanaged. You know, it was under Twitter, which is notoriously mismanaged now even more so. But Mm -hmm. even back then, it was just really hard. They didn't monetize quick enough. They didn't, they made so many errors. I have a whole chapter, actually, I have almost two chapters about Vine and the rise of Vine and what happened and also just like the aftermath, which led to this explosion in social video. Yeah. And I saw you actually just recently in the HQ. uh, Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, she's probably got a lot of background from Vine on these guys. Yeah, it was crazy. That was like right when I switched from I was running social for companies and writing on the side always. And then finally in 2017, like that again, that was the year so much changed. And I got my, I decided to write full time. And like my first month writing, I did that HQ story and it just like went crazy. It was very funny. Um, <laughs> it was that, that was like right place, right time. I think part of it. Oh yeah, totally. Also it was just like Russ's, Russ's, a really wild character. And I knew him not just from Vine. I was one of the sort of top influencers on Hype, which was the live streaming app that he that was the precursor to HQ that I was addicted to. And I would live stream for hours on Hype. And I was like on the popular page all the time. And so when I did that story, I just remember being like, Russ, it's like, it's me. It's Taylor Lorenz. Like I'm not writing a it's hit piece team. on Scott yeah. Rogowski at all. Yeah. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I love this product. And yeah, he's, you know. It's all good. <laughs> so I think this also is, is a thing that Adam and I've been really curious about because the the framing of pieces about different generations, like there seems to almost be like a, a house point of view about it. And we were wondering like how much of this is the reporter's beat? How much of this is whoever writes the headlines? <laughs> how much of this is like coming from an assignment editor who's like, we know we get a lot of clicks when millennials are in the head or the subhead, you know, like th- those kinds of things. And and I would also say it's interesting what you said about the Washington Post being more kind of politically oriented, because the thing I did yeah. notice even just like the skim through your pieces for the Times, the skim through your pieces for the Post, And way more of your headlines in the Times name check Gen Z, name check millennials, whereas more of your posts on, I hope I'm not overstating this, but like on the the Washington Post or like just name checking the businesses or the CEOs, like it's TikTok, Mm -hmm. it's Elon, it's whatever that gets, gets talked about there. What's the role of the kind of editors and the machine behind trying to get traffic for, for how these sorts of stories about meme culture, about youth culture get get assigned, get covered, get edited. Maybe talk like a little glimpse behind the scenes for us about that. Yeah. Well, they don't care about traffic. They care about subscriptions. Um, Mm. So it's all about converting to subscribers, um, which is a huge change because it used to be all about traffic. And I (laughs) came up in that digital media ecosystem where like you had traffic goals and if you didn't meet your traffic goals, like you were screwed. And like you, I had, just remember being like, I have to hit, you know, 5 million this month. I have to hit 5 million and I'm going to write up some stupid trend because I need to hit my numbers, you know, um, mm-hmm. and feeling that pressure. And then now I would say in the past, like four or five years, especially at places like the times and the post, they're so much more focused on like converting their subscriber mm-hmm. base, especially the post, the post is way is actually way more focused. I mean, just working there. I think a lot more about subscribers than mm-hmm. I did at the times I still thought of traffic, but yeah. So there's those sort of 
structures at play when you're writing headlines, you're thinking like, okay, you know, what is this? But also I like to write silly headlines and I don't get to, you don't get to choose the headlines for your own stories. So editors Mm -hmm. write the headlines. And if I could put headlines on my own stories, I think they would be, you know, my first job was at the Daily Mail actually. And I came from tabloid, you know, I love tabloid Mm -hmm. news. And so my inclination with headlines is to always kind of like sell the drama of the story or like Mm -hmm. get people clicking and you know at the post they like to tone it down big time um Mm. so it's definitely more just I think it's it's usually just a more straightforward headline instead of like Elon demolishes you know whatever like there's not those (laughs) adjectives in there which I totally get that's not the kind of paper it is but um right but if I was writing my headlines, I think I would, I would probably add some more drama. But yeah, it's it's just interesting like that, that also just the nature of media. Like, I mean, I used to be in these jobs where, again, back in digital media days, you had to post all day long. And it was this blog culture, which I came from, mm-hmm. where you're like posting all day and you're just trying to get page views and traffic. And now no one cares about page views. We also do like slideshows were a big thing for a while. Yeah, it's just not that that incentive structure isn't there anymore um, because- I think a lot of people understand that traffic is silly. And if you want to get traffic, honestly, just write up SEO headlines and Facebook isn't delivering the traffic that it used to. That was another thing is I would write articles specifically for Facebook traffic. Yeah. Does that that drive for (laughs) subscriber? That kind of changes the nature of reporting overall, because you're, you're not trying to get a single story that is salacious or click worthy and then share worthy, you're trying to build trust so that somebody says, okay, I'll pay the, the $8.95 for next month when that yes. when that bill comes, should they remember. So do you get direction from editorial team to, to take a tone or to, to have that high level perspective versus the Elon demolishes X, Y, or Z or Gen Z and boomers are at each other's throats kind of New York Post headlines? Yeah, I think it's like, I think they just want good quality journalism. And they just, you know, that's what they prioritize is the reporting. And I I like filing story. I literally just posted in Slack. I'm like, if anyone has a daily story, like, I am a reporter, like a lot of reporters that like needs a fix. Like, I, if I if my byline isn't on the internet, I feel like I don't exist. And it's been a real hard I, I'm a features writer now, too. So like, I don't mm-hmm. actually like my job is to write features, which actually take a couple of weeks. I just got back from a two week reporting trip. I'm writing this 3000 word thing. So like yeah. that is my job. But I, again, I think just having spent like almost a decade in that like traffic world, like I'm just like, oh my God, I haven't posted. Oh my God, I haven't posted. And so I think I post so much on the internet because I, I, it's like that, that mentality of like, you have to have the latest thing out or you're going to be forgotten. You know, people are not going to go to you anymore or something if you only write three times, which is not true. I mean, if, if, I know that's not true even when I look at other writers, but it's too baked into my head now, I think. <laughs> yeah, you can have it. But I have a really great editor. I will just say like my editor at the at the Post is like one of the best editors I've ever had in my entire life. And he's, I don't want to age him. I think he's 70 or 68 or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's this notion that like, oh, boomers are people always think like, oh, who's your editor? You know, do you have some like hip, like young editor or something? <laughs> and I have to tell you, like Pui Wang Tam, who was my editor at the Times too, like one of the best editors I've ever had in my life. Certainly not. She's definitely a generation older than me. I don't think she's as old as Mark, my editor now. But I've been really, really, really lucky because I think the most important thing is to have really good journalism editors. Like my editor, Mark, now is just... Mm-hmm. I can't even explain to you this man. He is like the best editor and of storytelling. And Mm -hmm. I don't think you actually have to have 
and he gets it. Like he gets it so much more than, than even people younger, like, you know, people Mm -hmm. that I've worked with that are younger than me. Like, so I just, I don't think it's an age thing. I think there are people, Mm -hmm. there are boomers out there that are like, so with it. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's funny too, because we were, you know, in, in preparing for this conversation, I was reminded of your okay boomer. <laughs> piece, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, from what, what was that? 2019 or something. And yeah, 2019. And, and this kind of idea about kind of intergenerational war and, and it's, it's very funny. Cause like that, that idea definitely got popularized. I think there's a little bit of a, I feel like it comes more from Gen X meme makers, <laughs> you know, and people on, on Instagram who are like exhausted by the idea. No. Well, okay, but also want to fight, you know? Oh yeah. Oh, the whole mm-hmm. like faith generational war. Yeah. But mm-hmm. okay. Boomer was, that came from TikTok. That mm-hmm. was a TikTok comment spam yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just a way to like dismiss people as like at the time as like out of touch. I think the right. whole like Gen Z millennial thing is like mostly just like elder millennials and Gen Xers that like want to like make some kind of drama. <laughs> I, I tried to do a story. Oh my God. I, it got, I didn't end up having time. I tried to do a story and I called literally dozens of hair experts and I'm still really mad I didn't do this story, but there was some sort of breaking news that I had to prioritize. And then it seemed too late about this, like middle, this notion that the middle part is like a, some sort of distinction. <laughs> yeah, the side part, the side part. Was I, sorry, the side part. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed all these hair experts and hair trend people. They were like, no, the middle part peaked in 2015 actually. And then it kind of, um, that, like that was this like turning point. It was nothing it has. And actually we're seeing not that, you know, that's not like the hairstyle at all, other than men started to wear like a different sort of, I guess, middle part of the hairstyle. But, um, anyway, that, that narrative was again, such a lie totally made up. So I, I've had a middle part for like a really long time. So I was very personally invested in this story. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was like, I'm going to debunk this. And my editor at the time was like, okay, you, there is like actual news happening right now, Taylor, that you need to focus on. <laughs> like, this is that key it- information. I need to have this. I was like, it's enough very funny. with this narrative. It was, it was, it was such a thing that even a few weeks ago, I went to get my hair cut, and she was like, "I'm gonna part. I'm gonna do a center part to cut it, even though I don't. I have a. I have no part. It just does random crap because I have yeah. a colic." And she was, and I was like, <laughs> I kind of made a joke. I was like, "Oh, is this the millennial thing?" And she was like, "No, no, no. It's just that like if I cut it." with a center part, then it won't be too long if it flops over to the other side. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. I understand what you're doing now. But she kind of like sighed first before explaining to me that it was not a millennial thing. So I would have read the piece is I guess what I'm saying, Taylor, because that definitely felt like this thing that was percolating. Yeah. Hairstyles change over time, but this mm-hmm. one did not. Like, so anyway. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever, tra- I'm, you do kind of break news on these trends. I mean, you're not actually breaking the news on them, but I learn about them through you. And because your accounts and you're, you're so visible on the post, for example, it's like, okay, if Taylor's saying that's something to look at, but with the hair example and a bunch of others, like the water skiing thing that was on TikTok a couple of weeks ago, like how often do you hear about these and not even have to debunk them where you just intuitively say like, no, that's not a real one. I'm not, we don't have to chase that one down. Oh, so many times. I mean, now again, too, it's like, it's such a different media landscape because I used to feel like, oh my God, if I don't write this, no one will write it. No one's talking about it. It's going to be wrong. Like that, that comic, like someone is wrong on the internet, you know, like, (laughs) and now also it's not just that there's so many more phenomenal 
trend reporters, like some of the people that I just mentioned and so many more that are like really accurately covering these trends. But also there's this whole like commentary industry on TikTok now that mm-hmm. like debunks things in real time and like gives mm-hmm. cultural commentary. And I think just like contextualizes trends in a really smart way. So I think that's really helpful actually is like you see, not only do you see the trend, but you see the immediate pushback and discourse about it and all that. So. And then do you, do you apply that to stories about millennials or larger groups? Farah and I are really interested in stories about groups. That's how this, this podcast started, but we're focused on millennials at the time right now. Do you see that same, is there a machine around that too? That is, we see like the post will never miss an opportunity to say, Millennials are killing this, or what was the one the other day, Farah? Millennials are having do- uh, drive-through weddings, or whatever it was, which no data yes. about a single age. No, there's never data. There's no. never data. It's literally like, oh, I found three people. Yeah. I saw yes. a post about this once. Yeah. I told you, Adam, three people is a trend. Um, and that's, yeah. that's, that's how you know. Three people it's in like, Australia. No, but it's like, they don't even have three people sometimes for some of these trend <laughs> stories. It's literally like an editor saw something once and decided mm-hmm. this, and they know it's going to be. A GC headline. Well, and that was one where I was I was curious because there, you know, I think there are obviously like Nick Gillespie and Reason was like, okay, Boomer went mainstream because of Taylor Lorenz. And so I, I jokingly wanted to ask you like, so how's the war going and who's winning? But but on the other hand, like there are other stories like the Chugi thing, which is interesting because mm-hmm. it is this thing that's like percolating a little bit on TikTok and elsewhere. But when you go look at like the Google Trends thing, like all of a sudden the search terms go up like the day after your piece goes up. And it's well, yeah, like, because so can yeah. I explain something? Yeah. Cause I write a lot of stories about language mm-hmm. and a lot of stories about language. I mean, I write about obviously, okay. Boomer. I wrote about the rise of the term nimsal niche internet micro celebrity. I've been so many terms about, I actually wrote a whole story about algo speak, which is the sort of type of language people use on TikTok, like saying like unalive instead of dead and things like mm-hmm. that. And I just am so interested in the way that language shapes the internet. There's actually a great book on all of this called Because Internet by mm-hmm. Gretchen McCullough, who's a mm-hmm. linguist. But especially with the Chugi story, it wasn't like, and I, the story even says, it's like, this is not a widespread thing. It's actually like this niche thing that's gone actually quite viral in a small community. But I think it speaks to this larger trend. And like, why does this word seem to be mm-hmm. resonating with everyone that sees it? And it's because it sort of like put a name to this like aesthetic and sensibility that people didn't previously have a name for. Mm-hmm. And so I think like when you're bringing that to a wider audience, it's important to say like, by the way, like this is this like thing, but it actually might be, you might find it useful too. You might find this language useful too. And obviously people did, and it really did hit a nerve and it went super viral, but yeah, the girl who made it, I also love her because she went to CU Boulder, which is where I went to school too. <laughs> she said she's a zillennial, like she's not a millennial or Gen Z. I don't know what she called herself a zillennial. It's like in between the two or something. Mm-hmm. So it's she all right. Was like, I was supposedly an ex-zennial. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's all these like weird middle ground people, but um, she's a copywriter and she's great. And she ended up deleting that video, but because mm. she was getting so much hate, like for a while, there was too much discourse about Chugi. I think she regretted unleashing it. But yeah, anyway, I just, a lot of people are like, oh, you, you know, I don't think there's like a bar to write about trends. I think you can write about small, interesting things where you're taking this little nugget and being like, look at this interesting thing. Don't you think that's like 
fascinating or relevant, or maybe mm-hmm. you might want to use this word too, because it actually speaks to this thing. But as long as you're not overselling it as like, oh, mm-hmm. which a lot of articles that followed did, they made it sound like it was this thing. And it's like, guys, like you made it a thing. Like now it's yeah. a thing because the New York Times wrote about it, but like it really wasn't before. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. You, the insight I just heard is with the Chugi example, hey, this is this group of people is talking about this. And I think it describes, it's a word that describes a blank space in your head, maybe. Mm-hmm. And stories of, that the Post writes about millennials are like, let's put these people in a container and critique them versus, yes. hey, we should look at this story about drive through weddings as an overall change in the way people look at weddings or look at the, how the economy is impacting that or relationships. Like there's a million ways you could expand that out and make it a story that relates. But instead they say like bad people doing thing that harms boomer economy or whatever it is. In most cases. And to clarify, you mean the New York post, right? I do. Mean, I'm sorry. I do mean yes. specifically the New York post and not the Washington post. I think, <laughs> I think Taylor knew that too, but you're, thank you. Okay. Listeners. Yeah. yeah. I know people say the post and I still think of the New York post because I'm from New York. Um, (laughs) And in my head, I'm like the post, the New York post. I'm like, I work for the Washington post. Yeah, no, the New York post, the daily mail. I mean, look, like they love these kind of, they love stuff like that. It's just bait. Um, But I think it's, it's a loss because there, there are real interesting things to talk about with this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those articles are just designed to trigger people into clicking and sharing. They, they work. We, we share them in our Slack and Google Docs. So. (laughs) <laughs> New York Post has us definitely. <laughs> well, they have us going. This is nonsense. <laughs> this is this is. They got you in a chokehold. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is our this is our beat, I guess at the at the moment. Well, and also because you know, I think I think the people who are reacting to it are people who are like not in that culture, right? They're sitting outside of the culture, and what they're attracted to is not just like this thing is interesting. It's like I should have a take on this thing. <laughs> you know, it's it's either further proof that there's something wrong with young people, or it's further proof that you can't talk to people anymore, or what whatever it is. It sort of fuels that sense of separation anyway. My uncle, who absolutely does not listen to this podcast, is totally that guy, right? Who like at some point early mid pandemic, you know, called me up and was like, you know, the city is on fire, right? And it's just a hellhole now. And I was like, no, it's fine. And people are eating outside. It's really pleasant, actually. Thank you for asking. (laughs) When I moved to Brooklyn, you thought that this was just like the Bronx is burning kind of an imagination. (laughs) My, um, my big pet peeve with all that stuff is they also, especially the Today Show, the biggest culprit of this more than anyone else, and I wrote about this recently, they push completely fake made up TikTok trends constantly. And they did one recently claiming multiple people had died, literally died, which they'd previously have claimed people have died from other trends too, that do not exist. And when I chased this one, they were saying the boat jumping challenge and people are dying. And I chased it down to a random man, not even like a law enforcement officer, a random man in in Alabama had made one comment on local news and they ran an entire Today Show segment saying this stuff and scaring parents and being like, you know, this is what young people are doing today. And it's like, no, they're not. And I mean, (laughs) I've written so every single time one of these trends comes up, I feel like I have to debunk it. But it's like, it's just bait for these news organizations that just want to like terrify people or anger people into engaging Mm -hmm. with their content. It's so corrosive. Yeah. And there's no repercussions. You know, you you no. debunk it, it aired, it's over, you know, they don't have to address it. It's not like it's a paper of record where there's some way for them to even issue a correction, even if they were inclined to do it. 
So they don't care because they keep doing it. You know, I truly think, I mean, I was like fighting with the NBC PR woman recently. It's just like, if you cared about this, you would, this is like the 10th time you've done this. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, if you cared about actually reporting on TikTok trends, you would, you would do that. You wouldn't just keep spinning up these nonsense stories just to get engagement. I mean, the craziest one was Momo. I don't know if you remember that from a few I years ago. I remember the Momo challenge very well. Which was not a thing. It was like just a creepy picture. And they were like, children are killing themselves when they are sent this picture. And it's like, no, they are not. <laughs> That's not how things work. Yeah. Also, this picture is not sentient. Like the way they were writing about it, it's just, it's a, it's a fear of new technology and it's a fear of like, what are children doing on their phones? But instead of really actually worrying about things like data privacy and exploitation, like, you know, by these companies, mm-hmm. um, they just get scared about stupid things. Yeah. it's They can find the symptom, but they can't find the actual way to express the underlying concern. Mm-hmm. Well, it's easier to do the moral panic thing about something's wrong with our kids than it is to say something's wrong with these tech CEOs or these regulators or yeah. these you know, media companies who are causing, you know, creator and influencer burnout or what, like you, you've written so many, like I saw the, the boat yeah. jumping piece, but I was also thinking about the, the piece that you did a while ago about, about creator burnout and like the way that kind of the revenue models work, the, the algorithms work, the incentives. I mean, when you were talking before about Vine having this antagonistic relationship with creators, I feel like we just keep repeating that cycle. And it even exists in legacy media. I think about the the quote from, I think it was Jill Abramson about the Times is always the prettiest girl in the room. And so your brand as a reporter or a columnist or whatever should never be bigger than the Times. And it's like, but yeah, I totally disagree with that. You have to have your own <laughs> brand. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, this is why I don't work at the New York Times anymore. <laughs> That's delusional. Yeah. I mean, it's good for their business. If I was the CEO of the New York Times, I would have the same posture. But, mm-hmm. um, I think, I mean, look, the Times is a great place because it's impossible to get like fired from there. Like they have a really strong, which is good, by the way. Like mm-hmm. I, I love the security of that place. You can literally work there for like 50 years and, and people it's have. an amazing place <laughs> yeah. and people have and people do. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I love that there's a place in journalism that offers that level of stability. I think it's great. And so many journalists are happy to just go there and disappear into the Times and just write the stories that they're mm-hmm. assigned for me, I am way more entrepreneurial and yeah, I didn't, I like to do outside projects and I'm always doing things. Mm-hmm. And the times is like very against all of that. And so it's just very mm-hmm. limiting, Yeah, but I do miss my editor there. Well, Taylor, um, really grateful for your time. I, I actually, I think we have run out of clock here with you. Your book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence and Power on the Internet. Simon and Schuster, you're big time. <laughs> people don't understand the difference between having a publisher by the way and self-publishing that's one thing i've learned from this mm. book what's the big what's the biggest difference I, well i have never self-published but a lot of people are were very frustrated that the book is not like immediately online and i had to explain like it's actually going you know through this whole process and people are like well i uploaded my book to amazon and it only took three days or whatever and i'm like that's because you self-published it so they don't it's it's just been so interesting to kind of i've learned a lot about the publishing industry and I've been trying to sort of like educate my, a lot of my followers are very young. So mm. I'm trying to explain to them. Yeah. If you post something for that group and they're like, I want this right now. I will start yeah. reading it immediately. Yeah. They're like pre-order. What's that? Yeah. Like I'm not put, put it on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't I have this? So, well, thank you so much for having me. This was such yeah. a fun chat. 
Thank you yes, so much for making you. time for us. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Pierno with support from The Difference Engine and edited by Allison Preisinger and Amp Studio. Music by Omega Man under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information. Please rate and review the show. Someone told us that helps.